All right, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and get us started as a few more trickle in, no doubt. Um, but let me lead us in prayer and we will get going um, on our lesson this morning. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who speaks. Um, we're grateful that because you have spoken, we can know you and um, that your Holy Spirit is with us as our chief instructor and counselor and teacher. And we are grateful for his ministry in our lives as he gives us gifts of illumination and understanding and, and leads us in the knowledge of you. So, Spirit, would you be with us this morning as we dive in uh, to this Introduction to Theology class, and would you guide our thoughts, and would you lead us into the truth, and would you sanctify us in the truth, and would you enable us to know you and our, and our great Father and, and the Son of God better. So, Father, we ask for your blessing um, on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as I mentioned uh, in the prayer, we do have a new quarter we're starting uh, this morning. And we're going we're gonna to do a 13-week class on um, Introduction to Theology. And so I want to walk through briefly where we're going to be going the next several weeks together. I'm not going to be the only teacher in the class. God has mercifully delivered you from such things. Um, we're actually going to have John Hogue um, teach us in January, and then in February, Larry Reed will be teaching the third part of the class. I've just got the first part, which will be this month in the month of December, so the next, this week and the next three weeks together. Um, just to give you a brief overview of where we're going, um, I'm going to be dealing mainly with the, what we call the practice of theology, or what I've called the practice of theology, which is how we approach theological study. How do we approach studying the Bible? studying who God is, studying what his revelation contains. And so I really want to lay a foundation over the course of these next several weeks in just in terms of theological approach, because that is, it's really an, an important thing to think about. Um, the Pharisees didn't become the Pharisees on accident. The Pharisees became the Pharisees because they approached theology wrong. And so Theology can go bad on us if we don't approach it in the right way. So that's really what we're going to be taking up this morning. We're going to ask the question of what should our theological posture be? How should we approach theology? What should be the, 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 the disposition of our hearts as we study theology? So um, my, my proposal today is we need to study, obey, and teach in that order. And we're going to talk about why this morning. In the next coming weeks... We're going to look at some theological priorities. That is, how do we think about doctrine and how we should think about doctrine in the Bible? Are all doctrines equally important? If not, why not? How do we navigate um, differences of opinion on doctrine? Things like that. We're going to deal with um, a key theological perspective um, in the Bible, which if we don't understand clearly, it will affect the way we read and put the Bible together. So we're going to deal with the already not yet tension. Um, in one class. And then finally, we're going to talk about um, theological precision, which is going to be, how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? And so, again, these sort of foundational building blocks help us put our Bibles together. And so I'm really thankful that over the last 13-week quarter, we dealt with the covenants, right, walking through each one of the six covenants one by one and drawing out some themes from that because that framework will influence this class a lot. So I hope that having set through some of those lessons and set through these lessons that we'll have a, a, an even better grasp on, on, on our Bibles. 
And then, Lord willing, in January, John Hogue's going to come, and he's going to talk about theological process, which are what we call the, the main branches of theology. Things like exegetical theology, dealing with the actual verses and texts of Scripture, how do we think about interpretation and things like that. Biblical theology, that is, what's the whole story of the Bible, how do we put that together. Uh, systematic theology, how do, we de- how do we categorize different doctrines and why is that important to do so. Uh, historical theology, how is the interpretation of the church throughout the years and how does that shape our understanding of Scripture and why is that an important exercise. And then finally, practical theology. So John's going to come and teach on the various branches, we call those, of, of theological study. And then finally, Lord willing, um, Larry Reed will come in February and talk about some theological paradigms. And this, I hope, will be really practical and relevant to the theology that we encounter in Owensboro. Um, there's lots of areas of theological study we could consider, right? But I, I really want to tap into what sorts of theologies exist in our own community. And so um, he's going to come and, first of all, give us our basic paradigm for theology, which is we're evangelical, we're reformed, and we're baptistic. Why are we that? And so he's going to spend a few minutes on each one of those walking through why we have this self-understanding as Heritage Baptist Church. And then um, we're going to deal with some non-evangelical traditions the following week, Um, things like liberalism, and where does liberal theology show up in our own community? Um, then we're going to deal with um, some non-Baptistic traditions, which again, these would be brothers and sisters in Christ that we would have lots in common with, uh, Presbyterian traditions, Anglican traditions, uh, Lutheran traditions, which we all in- would encounter in our own community, um, but, they, but they don't practice baptism the way we do. They would include the baptism of infants, so we'll talk a little bit about um, some non-Baptistic traditions in our own community. Um, and then finally, some non-reformed traditions, things like Methodism, um, Roman Catholicism. We could put Roman Catholicism under non-evangelical too, but for the sake of not overloading that category, we've moved it down a little bit. Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, or not Anglicanism, Methodism, and Pentecostalism. And uh, again, these would be, non-reformed would be for at least uh, among our um, Methodists, depending on how they hold to various core teachings. Um, but, but would be, would be our brothers and sisters in Christ, so, um, as well as Pentecostals. But, so we're going to think through these sorts of things and try to just give um, a basic but fair overview of those various theological positions. Again, th- we're going to deal with it as it presents itself in statements of faith. And so we know that if you talk to any, any other believer from another denomination or tradition, you're going to be surprised sometimes that they believe what they believe because we're not robots. We don't just believe what's on a state. Well, my statement of faith has said this, and therefore I believe it. Um, we're, we're much more complex and difficult than that. So um, we're just going to kind of deal with the statements of faith as they stand and then uh, and kind of walk through some of those. So the goal of this is really just getting our heads around basics of theology, how we approach it, how we arrive at different conclusions, why we tend to arrive there and what we can learn from those sorts of things. So a lot, but I hope it will be, um, it's going to be bite-sized. It's not going to answer every, every single question that we have. That's why, it's an, uh, that's why it's an introduction. But I hope it will be a sufficient and good introduction. So with that said, let's get into uh, this morning's first lesson on theological posture. It's be good to define theology up front, right? Um, our word theology, um, as I, I trust 
many of you know, comes from a combination of a couple of Greek words. There's theos, which is God, and there's logos, or logos, um, which is word or, or, or speech, um, or even study. So theology, then, is God words. It's studying God words. That is, it's the pursuit of the knowledge of God through his word. And so theology, then, is essentially referring to words about God. We simply say that to do theology means to study God. And everyone's a theologian. R.C. Sproul has a, a popular book of that title. And I remember reading it at first in, in R.C.'s typical provocative way. You read it and you go, huh, interesting. I never thought about that. And uh, it's a good title, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a true truth, as we could say, right? Everyone is a theologian. Everyone is operating out of a framework of who they think God is. Now, whether they don't believe that he exists or whether they believe he does exist and he's this kind of God, that's all being shaped by how they're doing theology. Um, so we, it's inescapable that we would do theology, and, and we need to do it intentionally rather than just reactively. The only difference is whether the God we believe in is the God who really is. J.I. Packer, in one of my favorite books, Knowing God, uh, says the following on page 19. He says, We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as, if, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So he, right on the front end of his book, Knowing God, presses the importance of theology that we disregard this, we not only disregard God, but we disregard ourselves as a result of that because we sentence ourselves to this sort of blind, leading the blind kind of life. So, as we'll see today then, um, before we get to the content of theology, which is what we're going to be dealing with in the subsequent months, we first have to deal with the context by which we study it. Before we get to what should shape our heads, we need to talk about what should shape our hearts and how our hearts get affected and shaped in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. God cares deeply about how we study him. Our posture really matters. In this class, we're going to talk about what that posture should be. That is, how are we to approach the study of theology? And our key text for this class will be Ezra 7.10. In this text, we get not only how to study theology, but we get the ultimate goal of it. Where are we headed? What are we after in our theological study? It can, as I said in the intro, go bad on us if we don't pursue it the way God has prescribed us to pursue it. And I think that Ezra gives us a compelling example that we need to pay close attention to in terms of theological study. So let's look at Ezra's example and see in this one verse what he has to teach us. So if you want to, you can turn there. We're basically going to sit in one verse the entire class, um, but it'll be on the screen as well as we, as we walk through it um, periodically. So here's the verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes, not his statues. There's a third typo I've already spotted. You'll see that a lot in my PowerPoints. Statues, no, statutes and rules in Israel. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord 
and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So um, just some initial thoughts on that from any of, any of you, brothers and sisters. Um, what, why do you think that's a, that's a good verse, or is it a good verse, about this topic of theological posture, how we study theology? What are, what are some initial things that jump out to you about, about that verse? It's a heart issue. Yeah. It begins with the heart, right? Yeah. Made, made it intentional to study. Yes. And to do it. Yeah, and to do it as well. Good. Yeah, Jim. If you think back in Deuteronomy, God said, if you follow my law, I'll bless you. If you don't, you'll go into captivity, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You know, things like that. Yeah. And there are consequences, happened. right? That's exactly what happened. Yes. Ezra's coming out of captivity. That's right. He's doing it the right way. <laughs> yeah. I think we could almost say that the reason the Israelites were sent into captivity in the first place is because they neglected that doing part, right? They knew it, um, and they could teach it in a lot of ways, but they weren't, they weren't living it. Yeah, Tim? It's a posture of humility. Yeah. How so? I, I don't know everything. I really don't know anything. And I've got to, I've got to submit my thought, my understanding, my heart, my will to that of God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what does this verse then teach us about what compromises theological study? What, what is the object? What are we actually studying to study theology? The Bible. Yeah, the Bible, right? He studied the law of the Lord. So the Bible is our, is our content. Um, and we've talked a lot about the, the how, right? We've talked about the importance of the heart, intentionality behind, behind it, with a focus on obedience. Um, what about why? What's, what's the ultimate, what is the ultimate, well, we're not told the ultimate goal here, but, but what is Ezra's key why here? Why is he setting his heart to study the law of the Lord? What, what is he after? Yeah, he's after personal obedience, first of all, and then he's after teaching that as an overflow of that. Okay, so from that, from this one brief text in Ezra 7.10, we get, I think, theological approach in, in, a, in a biblical sense. So theology done rightly, then, involves what I'm going to talk about this morning as three key things. Persistent effort in study, personal experience from obedience, and public expression through teaching. And all three of those are important elements, and the order is important in terms of the way we go about doing it. So that's where we're going to go. Yeah, go ahead. Go back up. Uh, I have a tendency when I look, when I read Ezra 7, 10, I, I don't know if I read it before, I guess when I read it through. But for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, it I know that this is right and I'm wrong. This is just my tendency to go, okay, Ezra following God, following studying theology is doing rules, and following statutes instead of pursuing God. That's just my yeah. tendency. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how does one shift their thinking to say, okay, to look at rules and statutes as relating to the pursuit of God and yep. having a relationship with Him? What does that Fantastic. Mean? That's our first point. You, your question has literally got us into the very first point. And that's all, I mean, I think, no. I saw your notes. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. 
I know, you just peek in on me. No, that's a great, I'm glad you asked the question because that frames the whole reason we're doing, because yeah, because the question is, I mean, are we just after laws and statutes and rules? Is that, is that our goal? I mean, is, or are we after God? And how do those relate to each other? How does the pursuit of God relate to the pursuit of his law or his statutes or his rules? So yeah, we'll definitely get into that here. Uh, first of all, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what it means to set your heart. Um, think about why this text begins with the phrase, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and not just Ezra studied the law of the Lord, right? It could say that, and there's nothing wrong with saying Ezra studied the law of the Lord, but why do you think it began with Ezra set his heart to study? By the way, set his heart is a little bit of a, I mean, it's a very, very Old Testament phrase, right? We don't typically use that. Hey, I don't, when I'm, when I'm asking my son to clean his room, I don't say, hey, son, I need you to set your heart to study or to, to clean your room. We, don't, we just don't use that phrase very much. But what, what, what is the idea, do you think, that's being communicated by setting one's heart towards something? He's made a holy resolve to do this. Yeah, yeah, right. There's, a, there's some sort of resolve component here, right, which kind of communicates something to us about how this study is going to go. It's not easy, right? It's not automatic. It requires some effort. It requires some intentionality. It requires some persistence. In fact, um, the Net Bible, which is one of the, one of the more wooden translations that I like to use, um, it said Ezra dedicated himself, dedicated himself to the study of the law of the Lord. So it's, it's that whole idea of, of him you know, whole soul, like, like Tom said, whole soul engagement um, and intentionality and effort involved in his pursuit. It wasn't, it wasn't a casual exercise for him. Yeah, Derek. Yep. Right. Yeah, good point. Yep. Yeah, the heart in the Bible, as I, I know many of you know, is, is, is talking about almost ev- all your internal world, everything, that, everything that's, that, that, that's, that's core to you. It's the animating center of your life. So it's not just your thinking. It's not just your emotions. It's not just your feelings. It's not just your will. It, it's all that. And so he's bringing everything that, that he has to, to this pursuit. Mark, yes, Carl. It's all right. I'm, so I was marked before I was passing. <laughs> but you can ask. Uh, so often, you know, if we don't set our hearts to something, we drift. And mm-hmm. you never drift into anything good. No. You don't drift into holiness. Right. Yep. As uh, John Maxwell has this familiar maxim that stuck with me over the years, everything worthwhile's uphill. At least in this life, I would say, Mr. Maxwell, at least in this life, there will be a day when we will just not have to feel like everything's uphill. But, you know, it's all, it's all uphill, worthwhile pursuits um, in this fallen world. So it's all going to require a degree of effort. So speaking of this whole setting your heart idea, I think Proverbs 2 captures well um, 
what's involved in this sort of persistent effort. Notice this. My son, if you receive my word, notice how active this all is. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with, with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. Notice all these active verbs. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. <laughs> I go, Lord, if you give it, why we got to work for it? <laughs> right? That, that's, in our minds, a gift is contrary to work. And certainly in our justification, in our salvation, there's not that work element to it. It is gift. But in our pursuit of God, we could say our sanctification, our growth, in our knowledge of Him and understanding of Him, there is a great deal of effort involved and a great deal of responsibility given to us in that pursuit. And I, I just I think that's a it, it's it's jarring. You, you, the verse concludes with the Lord gives wisdom, but the first five verses are all about yeah. But you receive, you treasure up, you make your ear attentive, you incline your heart, you call out, you raise your voice, you seek it, you search for it. Ezra knew that, and so that's why he set his heart to study, because he knew it wasn't just some passive exercise. So then, if the Lord gives it, why should we have to work so hard for it? I love this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Think over what I say, Paul says to Timothy in this letter, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Again, here's a similar idea that we just saw in Proverbs 2. If we have to think over it, doesn't, is that really the Lord giving us understanding? Or if the Lord gives us understanding, why do we have to think? And it was John Piper, I think, who first resolved this tension for me in a lot of ways. Um, here's a quote from him. He says, there's a command and a promise in the verse. Paul commanded, think over what I say, and then he promised, God will give you understanding in everything. Some people see tension between cogitation, that is thinking, and illumination. Not Paul. He commands cogitation, and he promises illumination. So how do the command and promise fit together? The little connecting word for gives the answer. Think, because God will reward you with understanding. The gift of illumination does not replace meditation. It comes through meditation. The promise of divine light is not made to all. It's made to those who think. B.B. Warfield says, Sometimes we hear it said that ten minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than ten hours over your books. What? Is the appropriate response. Then ten hours over your books on your knees? Right? Don't separate what God has put together. Right? Warfield's contention is we need both. We need prayer, and we also need diligent, thoughtful, intentional study. All right? You know, we can't just call out to God and say, All right, Lord, give me understanding in everything, and I'm not willing to put forward any effort. Well, God will say, Then you really don't want it. Right? But it, nor do we say, I'm striving, I'm trying, I'm working hard, and I'm not getting it. Well, have you asked God? You know? So, again, it's a both and, not an either or, Bobby.
Yeah. And or over sermons instead of being over the book. The sermons that other people preach. Sure. And uh, so I have a tendency not to not feel my need to sermon people. Yeah, yeah. Good point. All right, so with that setting your heart idea given, let's uh, talk briefly about persistent effort. So this will get into uh, the, the question that Bobby raised earlier. So according to the text, the object of our study is the law of the Lord. So the law of the Lord doesn't just mean his rules and statutes. It, the word is Torah. It's instruction. It's everything that God has spoken. So we don't need to just limit ourselves to, okay, is this technically biblical law that I'm reading? No, it's, it's, it's all law in a sense in that it's all instruction. It's the scriptures that are being referred to here, and specifically for Ezra, the Old Testament scriptures. So the object of our studies is the scriptures, but we must not make the study of the scriptures an end in itself. Okay, the, the scriptures are given as a mediating instrument by which the knowledge of God comes. They're not, they're not the end of our study. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus rebuked the people for doing, especially the religious leaders, when he said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you, you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus' operating assumption for theological study is that it should always lead you to God. It should always lead you into personal relationship. It should always move, your, move you away from a book to a person. Or in Ezra's case, from a scroll to a person. Right? But the people that Jesus is talking to here said they were just fixed on the book. They just stopped. They searched the scriptures. They think that in doing that, that was all they needed to do to have eternal life. And he says, your study of the scriptures never led you to a relationship with God. It stopped with a study of the text. So, and this is why all of our study of the law of the Lord must lead us to the Lord of the law. John seventeen three, and this is eternal life. Not that they just study the scriptures, but that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, let not the theologian boast in his study. Right? We could add a number of different things there. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For whatever gain I had, Paul said, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count as everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing theology. No, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, <laughs> right? My Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So again, it's all about personal relationship. Jonathan Edwards said, in light of that, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, frequently, that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. So he wanted to be able to look at his life over a period of time and say, okay, I'm growing in my understanding of the scriptures, and I can, I can determine how I'm growing. But he would also say in other resolutions that he was resolved to grow in holiness, he was resolved to grow in his relationship with God, and he never pitted the scriptures and their study against that pursuit of God himself. 
So that is um, persistent effort through study. Let's talk secondly about personal experience from obedience. So Ezra, and I would argue that we as well, need to study in order to obey. Um, why do you think it's so important that Ezra sandwiches obey between study and teach? Why does he do that? Why does he make it personal before he makes it professional? Yeah, yeah. So if we're not walking what we live, we forfeited the right to teach it biblically, right? Faith obeys. Faith obeys? Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. Why, why, uh, Derek, yeah. 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 I remember the old adage, and Bobby will remember this from campus outreach days, but they kind of drilled into our heads in college when we were in ministry and getting discipled together and, and a lot. You know, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Now, again, you don't want to pit teaching things against uh, modeling things, right? But it is true that more is caught than taught. More is caught by a life observed by modeling and reinforced by modeling than any amount of teaching could ever, could ever produce. And that's why we know that as parents, we know that as grandparents, like our kids are going to generally know what we do and, you know, and see what we do, not just what we, what we say. So our theological study then will be warped once the goal becomes knowledge and not knowledge leading to obedience. It, it goes bad on us. So our approach then is very important, and if we pursue, pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on us. In fact, it can make us proud and conceited, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, you know, knowledge puffs up. Well, that doesn't mean that knowledge in and of itself puffs up. Knowledge as an end in itself puffs up, okay? Knowledge is a good thing. The Bible over and over commends knowledge, commends knowledge, commends the pursuit of wisdom, commends the pursuit of God, but never as an end in itself. If it's just treated as facts that I know or things that I know, it can, it can puff us up. And this is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. In fact, the very first thing, the very first woe he pronounces on the Pharisees in Matthew 23 is woe to the Pharisees. Do what they say, don't do what they do, because they don't do what they say. They don't practice what they preach. And so that's the, and if that's the first woe, that was probably the dominant characteristic of the Pharisees' lives that people observed or commented about. Um, or especially Jesus drew people's attention to. 
So from there, then, here's what we get in Stephen... Um, go back here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Stephen Williams, in an article I read this week called Thinking Theologically, he, he, in, he puts on the places an emphasis on the importance of this personal obedience. He says, Pure thought on profound realities will not long stay pure or illuminating if not nourished by experience. Many people fear that evangelical students studying theology will capitulate to liberalism. They're less watchful of the danger of a student retaining evangelical beliefs but drying up spiritually and losing all vital experience of God. We can use all the pious vocabulary yet get more enjoyment from books on the atonement than from the company of the Savior. But when that happens, theological thought itself also suffers because the subject matter of theology cannot be understood merely by informed reflection. In fact, the Bible would say we don't know until we live. Which is why God gives trials. Because we can't learn theology in a vacuum. We have to learn it in the context of life. And so as God presses reality into our lives and experiences, we begin to know as we didn't know before. Right? It's one thing to be able to sing, um, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's another thing to know it and have stories attached to it. Right? And so, so God intends that there not, that not only be a truth that's contained in the Scriptures, but that's a truth that has stories in our life that we attach it to. Um, because we, we know God in a deeper way through those experiences that He brought us through that taught us His faithfulness. So this is why the Bible says that he, it couples doing with knowing. According to Scripture, we don't truly know something until we're trying to do it. There's a reciprocal relationship between doing and knowing. Here's what John 8, Jesus says. If you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He doesn't say, if you know my word, the truth will set you free. He says, if you know my word and obey it, the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. You will know the truth if you abide. You will not know the truth unless you abide. So doing leads to knowing. He also says that he would manifest himself only to us if we obey what we know. Remember John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the manifestation of the Son of God in our lives comes not that we know his commandments, that we have his commandments, but that we keep his commandments. And it's there that the Lord will manifest himself to us. So there's a link then between study and obedience. I have a question, Mark. Yeah. On that last John 14. Yeah. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So is there a correlation there between obedience and like knowing him intimately? Like, so we're not saved by obedience, but we're saved by grace. But then. The love, of, uh, the love he has for me, and my response to him, and then if I, have, you know, if I have an opportunity to sin and I choose obedience, he will manifest. He will make himself personally, yeah, more known to me. I think so. Relationally, yeah, I think it's a relational dynamic that he's expressing that is a result of obedience. That there will be a there will be a relational dynamic that will be at place where the, where there's not obedience, there won't be that relational engagement. 
So one of the main ways that we both strengthen our resolve to obey what we study and prevent our study from becoming merely mechanical is to enjoy the Lord. And this is in part what it means to set our heart to study. Think about Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the reason the psalmist loves to study is because he delights in God. Right? He enjoys doing it. In fact, Westminster Confession, question one, right? What's the chief end of, or Westminster Catechism, question one, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So there's nothing that produces emotion like truth, right? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is explaining to them, giving a little mini Bible study of the Old Testament, what's their response after leaving that time? Did not our hearts burn within us? Didn't you feel close to God? Didn't you feel like you were on, on the threshold of eternity when he was speaking to us like that? I mean, it, it, again, it's, it's, the tr- it's truth expounded to the person's heart out of a life that is embodying that truth. And no, nobody's life embodied the truth more than the Lord Jesus himself. So enjoying God is important for obeying God. Enjoying God matters profoundly because apart from our souls relishing the beauty of Christ then we don't stand a chance against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sam Storm says, The diabolical strategy of the enemy is to seduce us into believing that the world and the flesh and sinful self-indulgence could do for every weary and broken hearts what God couldn't. Could do for our weary and broken hearts what God couldn't. This is the battle that we face each day. We awaken to a world at war for the allegiance of our minds and the affections of our souls. And the winner will be whoever can persuade us that he will bring greatest and most soul-satisfying joy. That, that is why we must labor and pray and strive so passionately and sacrificially for joy in Jesus. You will not obey God if you only believe that he, what he says is true. The truth must be compelling because you've personally experienced him as beautiful and good. And if you find yourself struggling to see him as beautiful and good, obey him. <laughs> right? A- ask yourself, in what ways am I not currently obeying Jesus? Because enjoyment not only serves obedience, but obedience serves enjoyment. Right? John seven seventeen, Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do my will, he will know whether these things that I'm speaking are from God or not. So Jesus lays out the challenge. He says, you know, people in the church, kids growing up in the church, friends of Christians, hey, if you want to know if Jesus is true, you ain't going to study your way into it. You're going to follow your way into it. So take me up on my challenge. He says, if your will's to do my will, you'll find out whether I'm true or not. See, we were convinced by Jesus that he's real, not because we read it in a book and we said, oh, that makes sense. We read it and it, cha- it, it did something. We, we acted on it. We changed some things. We started relating to Jesus. We started turning away from sin. We started believing promises that... And relating, right, and that's what brought life, because that's conversion. That's, that's what happens in, when we actually repent and we actually believe. It's not just something we do in our heads. Again, Sam Storm says, Obedience nourishes delight and joy. God's commands are his prescription for happiness and spiritual health. We must therefore trust God when he says that sin will corrupt and destroy and that obedience will bless and enrich. 
Disobedience dulls and anesthetizes our spirits to God's presence and activity. It diminishes our capacity to delight in Him, drains our spiritual energy, and lays waste to our ability to focus on God and trust Him confidently. It unleashes in our spiritual system a toxin that will progressively cause our spiritual eyes to go blind and our spiritual ears to go deaf. And that's what Ezra knew. (laughs) He said, I don't want these toxins getting released because if I'm studying but I'm not obeying, then my teaching's going to be all wrong. Or at least it's not going to be as powerful as it could be. So finally, in the last few minutes here, public expression through teaching. This is really the goal. The goal of our study is ultimately to pass it on. All right? We, we, we are to take what God teaches us about himself and we're to pass it on for the benefit of other people. We don't study God's Word for our own benefit. We study God's Word for others' benefit. The knowledge that we gain from study and obedience is a sacred trust that God has given for which He holds us accountable to give away. So theology is meant to be passed on. Even though Ezra was a scribe and called to a special priestly office, all of God's people now have a priestly role, which includes teaching. Now, not necessarily public teaching, right? But the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states that all believers in Christ share in Christ's priestly status, and therefore there's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. And all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. Of course, the church still has pastor-teachers that were charged with equipping the saints for the work of ministry. But all God's people are called into ministry. Pastors don't do the ministry for the church. They do ministry with the church. Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. ESV Study Bible says, Paul encourages ordinary Christians, no doubt, especially those who have greater maturity and wisdom, to give one another practical, real-life wisdom and counsel. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 14, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So he's talking about honoring your pastors, and then he says, hey, don't just think this, this admonishment and encouragement and helping of the weak is just for pastors. It's for all of us. They equip us for these things, but then we do it alongside of them as well. 1 Peter 2.9, you, that is all of God's people, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we got a pond on the left and a river on the right. All right, and I'll close with this, this image. All right, on the left, this is what happens to Christians who study and obey for themselves but never pass it on. They get funky. Funky, 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 funky. I was listening to the uh, song last night at the reception. So, right, because we're not intended to just, it's not the water that God pours into our lives of His Word is not intended just to sit there. It's meant to be flowing out of us to others all the time. And so, as we, as we pass it on to those in our families and those in our church and our brothers and sisters and those in our spheres of influence, we, we keep ourselves from becoming unclean, right? We keep ourselves from becoming tainted and toxic. It's as we pass those things on. In fact, I've, I've met with many brothers and sisters over the years, and uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll meet for various reasons and we'll talk about struggles that they're having or whatever. And, and, I, and I'll inevitably bring up at some point, hey, who are you investing in? Who do you care about helping spiritually? Um, are you striving to help anyone else spiritually? Because oftentimes we get ourselves in funks spiritually because we're not passing on what we're, what we're learning. We're just, it's just, we're just getting poured in, poured in, poured in, poured in. You know what it would be like if you just ate all the time? you would feel like garbage. It's because we're meant to eat and do something with it, right? Use that energy. If not, we won't burn those calories and we'll, we'll have really bad health problems. So we need to use that food for the benefit of other people. So in conclusion, when it comes to our study of theology, we're to be highways, not cul-de-sacs, to use a different illustration. It was never meant to stop with us. Our knowledge of God has come to us because God intends that through us it be passed on to someone else. So let's make sure they get it. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the time together to dive into this subject of theology and theological posture. And Lord, we want to approach you rightly. We want to approach you from the right heart. We want to set our hearts not just to study, but also to obey and to, and to pass on what we learn. Lord, not all of us are called to get behind a lectern like this morning and teach publicly or preach, but we are to share what we've learned. And uh, you have equipped us for doing that. And so we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to study, obey, and teach, and to do so in that order for your glory, for our good, and for the growth and building up of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much. We are dismissed.